And you got your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 is where we are going to be as we continue. Uh, just working through the book of Colossians, one of, if not my favorite book in the New Testament. There are two passages in Colossians that kind of stand uh, above all the rest. One is what we're going to tackle this morning. The other, I would say Colossians 3, when Paul encourages us to live a life in light of the resurrection. And this morning's power is just a deeply powerful, very personal to me. I've been looking forward to, to preaching this specific text. Uh, Colossians also deals a lot with your understanding of who God is. It's going to challenge your understanding of God because we've talked about this. What you believe about God will determine uh, ultimately how you live. You've probably maybe heard, it, uh, heard this said before, and we've talked about this quite a bit that your picture or understanding of God uh, will usually be revealed during times of trial and difficulty. What you really believe about God surfaces when things don't align right, when it's, it's easy when life is up to the right to look and say, well, God's in control, God's sovereign, but what happens when things are just messed up and out of control? What happens when you look at circumstances in life and you're like, why, why is it happening this way? Uh, years ago, uh, we were, uh, my group of friends, we decided to, to take a trip to Colorado. This is actually, uh, Lindsay and I are about to have 15 years of marriage here in, in a couple months. We were in the friend zone during this trip. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we were in the friend zone during this trip. Uh, and we were in the friend zone because I broke up with her. I had commitment issues. She was ready to get married. I had a little bit of immaturity to me. I wasn't sure if I was ready to get town, tied down forever. And so I broke up, but we still worked at the same church together. Yeah, it's rough when you're in the same friend zone and you break up but still have to hang out all the time or get to hang out, right? All the time. And so we decided, our friend group, we were going to take a trip. The girls were going to stay in Breckenridge, Colorado. The guys, we were going to go out to Moab, Utah and ride mountain bikes because we had been riding mountain bikes for almost a year now. So why not do the toughest trails in the United States because we were pros. And so that's, that's what you do, right? And so I remember... We took off on the trip. I borrowed my mom's brand new SUV because she allowed us to, and it was way better than my car. And so we loaded up, we got the bikes on the back and we take off. And some of you have made that trip on I-70 through Kansas, the one that there's no turns. You just go straight for like 14 hours, right? And I remember we're like halfway through Kansas, we get to Hayes, Kansas. This is before the days where you can just like pull up the radar on your phone, see what the weather's doing. And the tornado sirens are going off as we're driving through Hayes. My wife and I are from Moore, Oklahoma, right? Tornado sirens don't bother us. That's like a Tuesday afternoon, right, in Moore. And so, like, we didn't think much about it. We just kept driving faster. We get on the backside of the storm. I've been in a lot of storms in my life, but I've never been in a storm this bad. The hail was coming down sideways, large hail. This 18-wheeler on the other side of the road flips over because the wind's going, it's so, so windy. So we are holding our pillows up against the windows because we're waiting for the windows just to shatter. Like it's that bad. Like the car is rocking back and forth. We're not sure if it's going to stay up. Finally, when we pass, the storm passes, we look, my mom's car is destroyed, right? It is just like hail damage everywhere. Our bikes are dangling off the back of the, back of the car. So we end up going to Moab about eight miles into the trip. My buddy's bike breaks completely beyond repair. We have to walk his bike back like eight miles on like the greatest trail ever, which is not as fun when you're walking it uh, than you are when you're riding it. So nothing is going right. On the way home, this is the best part of the trip. I've told this if you've been around Sea Church for a while, you've heard this. On the way home, we're driving down out of I-70, out of the mountains of Breckenridge, into Denver. Many of you guys probably made that drive. I've done that 100 times. Our, our family went to Colorado every year. And so I see that the exits are blocked by highway patrolmen, which is odd. Never had that happen before. 
we take a corner, it's right before you get to Idaho Springs, and I look in the road and there, the road is blocked, but I'm going like 75 miles an hour. There are highway patrolmen in the road, but it's, it's happening so fast, I can't, I'm driving, I, I can't really figure out what's going on. And then I realize they've got those stop sticks in the road that they put when people are in like high speed chases and there's nowhere for me to go. So I hit the stop sticks and immediately all four of our tires are blown. Like we're going to the side of the road and I look behind me and there's this massive cloud of fire and like just smoke going up in the air. What in the world is happening? Like we're just, we can't figure it out. So a highway patrolman pulls up to us and he said, hey, just wanted to let you know there was a high-speed chase behind you for miles. We cleared everybody off the interstate except one car, you. <laughs> we couldn't get to you in time. And also, like, when we do this, and he goes, that, that pile of smoke back there that you see, that's the guy that we were trying to get. He just hit the embankment. His car just went up in flames, and so we got him. But he said, and then also, he goes, we never get all four tires blown whenever we do this, but we got all four of yours, <laughs> which just never happens. And I just remember like me and my buddy, like the girls get in the tow truck. The tow truck's not big enough for all of us. So we rode in my mom's SUV, which is now destroyed. Mom, thanks for letting us borrow your car. Is now destroyed. We're riding in the SUV on top of the tow truck out of the mountains. And I just, I just pulled the chair back and I'm like, this was not a good trip. <laughs> this is just like, you've ever been on one of those trips? Nothing goes according to plan, right? That is life sometimes, isn't it? I mean, that just happens. You look at your life and you're like, man, why is this? And it's in the out of control moments where I think we need a true revelation of who God is. If we're not secure and founded in who we believe Jesus is in our life, then we're going to determine God by our circumstances. Or we're going to look around and say, man, this just doesn't make sense. I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to mention it again because Colossians revisit it so often. Most people struggle to believe that God is good and that he's intimately involved in their life. As a result, when bad things happen or things seem out of control, we dig deeper into assuming that God is far off, unconcerned, or uninvolved. God uh, could have done this. He didn't act in this way. Therefore, fill in the blank. Where does our theology and our mind go sometimes? Can I really trust him? Is God really for me? Uh, maybe he's in control, but not really involved in the details of life. And maybe he's more like the cosmic watchmaker who winds it up, sits back, and now things are just playing out. And so we begin to develop our theology based on our circumstances and what we see around us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20 is, a, is about to help us reimagine who Jesus is and what it actually means for our life. Kind of the irony about this is Paul is about to paint this vivid, beautiful picture of who Jesus is, and he's doing it all from prison. He's suffering, he's going through difficulty, and yet he's about to tell you about the sovereignty and the goodness and how God is all-powerful and fully in control, and he's doing it in the midst of his struggle. And I mean, you and I aren't going through a struggle like Paul was going through when he's writing this beautiful passage that he writes. Previously on Colossians, if you missed last week, uh, we talked about Paul's intro to the church, a prayer for spiritual maturity he gives as kind of a spiritual father. We talked about kind of the background of the context. And if you miss it, I want to bring this up because it's important. Rome is seen as the hope, the salvation, the, the, the world power. Colossians and the church in Colossae are living in the shadow of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is at the peak of their domination and world domination. And they claim to be all powerful. You also have syncretism happening in the church. 
Syncretism is just a blending of different religions and beliefs. And so people were taking a little bit of mysticism and a little bit of Judaism and Christianity and kind of, I called it Build-A-Bear theology. You just kind of assemble a God that, that, that makes you feel good, right? Anybody ever been there? You guys know what Build-A-Bear is, right? All the parents do. It's the greatest scam on the planet, right? <laughs> you go in like $25 for a bear, you leave like $65 later, right? That, that cheerleading outfit for the bear costs as much as a real cheerleading outfit, right? All right, rant over, right? You assemble the kind of pieces that you want to assemble. This is what the church was doing. This is what the people in Colossae were doing. This is what we do today. So many people, I, I'm gonna take the pieces that fit me. I, I like this over here, I like this. But we also know there was a false teaching. The reason Paul writes this letter when he writes it is because there's a heresy that has sprung up in the church that is attacking them. And the heresy we know was adding to the person of Jesus. It's what heresies usually do. Jesus is great. He's a great moral teacher, but you need more than that. You need to do this. You need to add this. There's other things that you're missing. So here's the summary that we're using as we navigate through this book. In a city dominated by the Roman Empire, false teachings and a blending of beliefs, Paul writes this aversive letter to the church at Colossae, calling them to a different way of life. In this letter, Paul invites the church to reshape their imagination around a world saturated with Christ, to stand faithful against the bombardment of false gospels and to set their hearts, minds, and lives on the reality of the resurrection of Christ. Paul gives them this hymn or poem. And just so you know, in the theological world, there's a lot of debate. Did Paul write this hymn? Did he get this hymn from another place? What is it already around? We really don't know. We don't find this hymn recorded in any other documents. And it so perfectly fits Paul's theology in the book of Colossians. We kind of assume that Paul wrote this himself. This text that we're about to read is widely to believed to be the most powerful and well-articulated Christology in the entire Bible. When people think about Christology relating to the person, nature, and the role of Christ, they immediately go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, because it gives us this high 40,000-foot view picture of who Jesus is and what it means for us. And Paul is about to, to come, come out and kind of reimagine with the Colossians a new, uh, a new story for them, a new way of seeing God and the world around them. Their story had been hijacked by other competing narratives and other competing stories and things of the time. And just like our imaginations and our stories, are, there, there's competing narratives for the story of God in our lives. Paul also understands that your theology and your belief about God will ultimately shape your behavior. So he doesn't start with a Colossians just talking about let's change your behavior. Where does he start with the church? He says, let's start with your understanding of who God is. Because if you don't have an understanding of who God is, your praxis, your behavior, what you practice will never follow suit. And that's a powerful truth. I've realized in 16, 17 years of pastoring that if people don't understand who God is, they cannot have an intimate relationship with him. So Paul starts with who Jesus is on a cosmic, universal level. Let's read this. And instead of just going through the motions and reading it, I want you to read this this morning with your heart. I want you to open up your heart and mind to what Paul is saying here. Verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things and in him all all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's just pick apart a few of these passages. We could be here for days and weeks on this passage. It says this, the son Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I mean, we could stay on this verse literally forever. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God's like, if you want to know how God behaves, how God feels, how God responds, you don't have to wonder. You get to look at the life of Jesus. That Jesus is the icon. It's actually the Greek word for icon. The snapshot, the picture. He's the image of God and the perfect representation of the character and life of the Father. What, what was veiled or sometimes difficult to understand in the Old Testament, now we get clarity. Now the, the, the picture becomes clear. It's no longer fuzzy in the life of Jesus of exactly who the Father is and what the Father is trying to do in us and through us in this world. It goes on, it says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This is a difficult one because when we think of firstborns, we think of something, somebody that's created. Like Jackson is our firstborn son. But Jesus was not created Jesus is uncreated. He's preexistent. He's, he's eternal. And so uh, the, the Greek word that is used in this context is prototokos, which is literally where we get the word prototype, saying Jesus is preeminent. He is of supreme rank. He's the first among all. Let's keep going. It says, for in him all things were created. So think about this. Jesus is not part of the created order, but is over and above all created things. The dominating reoccurring theme in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is the phrase, all things. Paul says all things over and over again because he wants you to know there is nothing that is not subject to Christ. There is nothing that is not under his creation or over his lordship. Everything is under the scope of Christ and his creation. Paul goes on. He said, if you didn't understand that enough, let me, let me break it down even further. Things that are in heaven, things that are then in earth, things that are visible with your eyes and things that are invisible to your eyes, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Think about this. Wherever you look, or whatever realities you imagine, even if they do not acknowledge Christ as Lord, they owe their existence to Christ. They are Christ's handiwork. The world and everything around him is his handiwork. And one of the primary responsibilities of the church, of you and I, is gospel proclamation. It's one of the things that we do. We continue to proclaim the gospel, to empower the church and the world around us, to reimagine the world as if Christ and not the powers of this world We're sovereign. We live by faith in a different reality from those who are not in Christ. We live in a reality where we know that everything is actually subject to Christ, whether it looks like it's subject to Christ or not. Even if the world looks like it's spinning around in chaos and confusion, we know that Christ is still ordering things and at work. Amen? That is our gospel proclamation that the powers actually do are subjected to Christ because of the resurrection, because Christ defeated death and rose from the grave. We continue to declare that. 
Paul is declaring that in this passage. He says there are unforeseen forces at work in the world. There are powers that are in rebellion to creation because of sin. I want you to think about that. Because of sin, there are things that Christ created that are in rebellion to the way that they are created in Genesis 1 and 2. They're not working as God intended them to. Christ is still over all of those things. And Paul's thinking at this time about pagan religions and astrology and magic and mysticism and oppressive systems. Colossae happened, if you read the background of this city, it was rich in, uh, man, like deep magic, mysticism, magical things were at work in this city. And Paul is saying these powers are, are real, but the power of Christ supersedes them all. He says, those are the things that you can't see. There are things that you can see. But Christ is over all those powers as well. All presidents and emperors and dictators and governments and armies are subject to Christ. Their power may look powerful and all-powerful and sovereign, but their power is limited and it's temporary. It's given by God. Now let's stop for a minute, because remember we're reading someone else's mail. This letter is not written to us. If you were a follower of Jesus in Colossae in the first century, and everywhere you looked was Rome, Every piece of architecture, every coin, the, the emperor was not just dictator emperor, but he was seen as Lord and, and, and someone to be worshiped. You live in this world and Paul is setting the record straight. What you see is not the reality. There is a reality behind that reality. Are you following me? Christ is above all of these things. Rome looks all powerful, but let me tell you, they're not all powerful. It's limited, it's temporary, and there's another power. It goes on, Paul says, he being Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is being described in cosmic terms, not just our personal salvation, not just redeemer of our lives, but redeemer of, of all of the planet, of the universe, of the cosmos. Let me, let me just say this, for generations, I think the church, especially evangelical churches in America, got in some really bad theology where we thought, you know what, we're going to be raptured up out of this and the hell is just going to go in a fiery ball and it's not going to matter. So just follow Jesus because you'll get out of hell if you do, right? That's not the story of God. That misses the power and the beauty of the story of God, Genesis 1 and 2 in creation. The story is that God is going to return to earth through the person of Jesus, create a new heavens and a new earth here and all things that were disordered because of sin will now be ordered right. It will be recreated. And that's what Paul is talking about in cosmic terms. He holds all things together, not just our personal salvation, but redeemer of everything. I, I follow uh, NASA on Instagram. I don't know if you see the pictures that they post. And I I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to some of this. Some of you are like shaking your heads. Some of you are like, no, not me. Um, but they just released images of the James Webb telescope. I don't know if you guys seen images of that. It's the most powerful telescope ever created. So now it's, it's getting images over a million miles away from Earth. And in July, just a few weeks ago, their Instagram account was posting pictures. These are things we've never seen in, 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 our, in, in human history. And I'm gonna post this picture. This, I just came across this in July. I, just, I, I, I was just struck by the awesomeness of, of what this is. Some of the first pictures of this new telescope. It literally took a thousand images just to create this images. These are five galaxies interacting. These galaxies colliding and pulling and stretching each other in a gravitational dance. We are talking about galaxies here in this picture. I mean, the expanse of that, thinking about the creation of the universe. 
When I hear science, when I hear creation, when I look at this, I'm not thinking like, oh, these are, uh, you know, in, in conflict with who God is or creation theory. I'm thinking, man, look at the power of the God that we serve. Look at the creation of the uh, creator of the universe. I, Paul didn't know this information when he's writing this letter, but if he knew this today, I can't imagine how he would look at, at Colossians in this letter and be like, the same creator who put the universes in place redeemed your life, loved you, whispers your name. I mean, think about that, the power of Christ and what he has done for us. That's what Paul's saying here, the, through Christ, the world is sustained. No creature is autonomous or self-sustaining apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, the world unravels, it breaks apart. Christ holds all things together by his grace and love for us until all things will be redeemed and made new again in him. Now let's stop for a minute. And once again, go back to the church in Colossae. For us to understand how this text applies to us, we have to first understand how it applied to them, right? This is good biblical interpretation, biblical exegesis. If Paul is combating a heresy in this church that says Christ is not fully sufficient, you need more than Jesus. That Jesus is just a good moral teacher that you can take bits and pieces of, but you need more than him. What is Paul doing? Paul is obliterating that theory, isn't he? Paul is saying, Jesus is not a teacher among many. He's not something we take the bits and pieces of. No, Jesus is holding this whole world and universe together in his hands. No, we, we, we fall in awe and worship of him. He's everything. His work on the cross and resurrection was fully sufficient for life to defeat the powers of death and the powers of this world. We proclaim that Jesus is everything and fully enough. We don't add anything to him. Can you imagine the power of this? Paul is setting up the argument in Colossians for where he's about to go. And he's doing it at the highest level. And I think you and I struggle at times to believe that Jesus is actually in everything that we do. Because I think what happens, I, I've got a sponge up here. This is the sponge I use my, to wash my car at home. I didn't buy a new one for this, all right? Looks pretty bad. I think what we believe is that there are parts of our life in the world that are saturated by Christ. I think the parts that we feel like make sense, right? There are parts that Jesus is involved in. There's parts that, you know what, there's other parts of our life that we look and we're like, man, where is God? God is not involved, God seems distant. God didn't move like I wanted him to. Why would God allow me or someone I love to walk through this if he was fully in control and sovereign, right? And I, and I think what Paul is doing for us is saying this, literally this image of like, no, everything in your life is saturated with Jesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. That what would change in your life, in my life, if we really felt like the world around us was saturated in the presence of Jesus? Like Jesus cares about the little details in your life that you think there's no way he cares about that or sees that. There, there, there's no way that, that he's involved in that. What would change in your life if you truly believed that all around us in creation is Jesus, his handiwork, his fingerprints, in your relationships, in your conflict at work, in your uncertainty about, uncertainty about what job is next, the, the financial thing that you're walking through right now, the thing that nobody else knows about, your personal struggle, that Jesus is present. He's present. He's sustaining you. He's holding you together. He's inviting you into relationship 
with him? What would change if we truly believed this to be true? See, this is what I love about this passage we're wrestling with this morning is Paul is inviting the church, inviting us to reimagine a world where everything is saturated with Christ, his work, his redemptive purposes. He's saying that your imagination and your story has been hijacked. How many know that there's competing stories in our life? There's competing stories right now for your soul, for what is lordship. We live in a world that says, you know what, consumerism, you need a little bit more to find life. That is a story that is competing against the biblical story of God and his purposes for your life. Like you have competing narratives and stories. And Paul's saying, here is the story above all other stories. This is the highest level. There's nothing above Christ. This is where it all starts and where it all begins. This is what everything flows and moves through. He's everywhere and everything at all times. I want to do something this morning a little bit different. I don't normally read something like this, but I found it to be so powerful. Uh, there is a book Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmott wrote called Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire. They actually write this book. It's pretty theologically based. But write this book um, talking about Colossians in light of the Roman Empire. So if you're a church member in the church in Colossae 2,000 years ago and you're reading this letter from Paul and you're living in a Roman world, how Paul is addressing so many things that have allusions to Rome. He's, he's, he's challenging some of the assumptions and things that people believed. In this book that they wrote, they write what we call subversive poetry. Subversive poetry is what Paul is doing right here in, first, in Colossians chapter 1. He's writing a poem or a hymn that is subversive to the empire, the politics, and the culture of the time. It's exactly what the Old Testament prophets did time and time again. They would write poetry in the Old Testament, right? Saying, you are living in the empire of the Assyrians or Babylonians, but you're called to be God's people. Here's how you live counterculturally in a world that tells you otherwise. And in this book, they write a modern day translation of Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. And it's going to take me several minutes to read this, so I want you to find a comfortable spot. Don't go anywhere. I want you to just think about the words of this. Allow this to speak to your heart. The words are going to be on the screen, or if you need to close your eyes, you can just listen as I read it. In an image-saturated world, a world of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to be able to dream of life otherwise. A world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly of our imaginations. In this world, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In this world, driven by images with a vengeance, Christ is the image par excellence, the image above all other images, the, images, the image that is not a facade, the image that is not trying to sell you anything, the image that refuses to co-opt you. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the image of God, a flesh and blood here and now, in time and history, with joys and sorrows, image of who God is. He is the source of a liberated imagination, a subversion of the empire, because it all starts with him and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, outer space, urban space, and cyberspace. 
whether it be the Pentagon, Disneyland, Microsoft, or AT&T, whether it be the institutionalized power structures of the state, the academy, or the market, all things have been created in him and through him. He is their source, their purpose, their goal. Even in their rebellion, even in their idolatry, he is the sovereign one. Their power and authority is derived at best, parasitic at worst. In the face of the empire, in the face of, the, of presumptuous claims to sovereignty, in the face of the imperial and idolatrous forces in our lives, Christ is before all things. He is sovereign in life, not the pimped dreams of the global market, not the idolatrous forces of nationalism, not the insatiable desires of a consumerist culture. In the face of a disconnected world where home is a domain in cyberspace, where neighborhood is a chat room, where public space is a shopping mall, where information technology promises a tuned in, reconnected world, all things hold together in Christ. The creation is a deeply personal cosmos, all cohering and interconnected in Jesus. And this sovereignty takes on cultural flesh and this coherence of all things is socially embodied in the church against all odds against most of the evidence. In a show me culture where words alone don't cut it, the church is the flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows, embodiment of this Christ. As a body politic around a common meal in alternative economic practices, in radical service to the most vulnerable, in refusal of the empire, in love of this creation, the church reimagines the world in the image of the invisible God. In the face of a disappointed world of betrayal, a world in which all fixed points have proven illusory, a world in which we are anchorless and adrift, Christ is the foundation, the origin, the way, the truth, and the life. In the face of a culture of death, a world of killing fields, a world of the walking dead, Christ is at the head of the resurrection parade, transforming our tears of betrayal into tears of joy giving us dancing shoes for the resurrection party. And God made flesh, who has danced in the dragon's jaws of death, now dances with a dance that is full of nothing less than the fullness of God. This is the dance of the new creation. This is the dance of life out of death. And in this dance, all that was broken, all that was estranged, all that was alienated, all that was dislocated and disconnected, what once was hurt, what once was friction is reconciled, comes home, is healed, and is made whole. Because grace makes beauty out of ugly things, everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, outer space, urban space, and cyberspace, every inch of creation, every dimension of our lives, all things are reconciled in him. And it all happens on a cross, it all happens at a state execution where the governor did not commute the sentence. It all happens at the hands of the empire. It has captured our imagination. It all happens through blood, not through a power grab by the sovereign one. It all happens in embraced pain for the sake of others. It all happens on a cross, arms outstretched in embrace. And this is the image of the invisible God. This is the body of Christ. So you stand to your feet with me across this room. We're going to sing a song together. I don't know how you end a message on first, or, excuse me, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 without 
just worshiping? What's the response other than just throwing your arms up and saying, Father, I give you everything. We're gonna practice that together for the next few minutes. Just close your eyes where you're at for a minute. Father, we thank you for your word. God, that we, we thank you that we can read this letter 2,000 years later and it captures our imagination again to understand that Christ is in everything and everywhere. He is the fullness of everything that was, everything that is, and everything that will be. God, forgive us for latching on to another story, stories that will never fulfill. Father, we just worship you this morning with arms lifted and outstretched. God, here is our life, creator of the universe who knit us together, who called us by name, who redeemed our lives. We give everything to you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to read how Paul ends this section in Colossians 1. Let's look at the last few verses. He goes on to say, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now Jesus has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul starts with creator of the universe all the way down to redeemer of your soul, of your life. I know it's not Advent or Christmas, but I am still in awe continually at the incarnation of Jesus, that the creator of the universe would take on flesh. But you think about it, this is the greatest reversal in human history, that God, who spoke the world into existence, would come into our world, take on flesh and suffer, not through a power grab, but through sacrifice. We're about to come to the table and take communion if you wanna prepare. We do this every Sunday here at City Church. We practice open communion here. That means if you're hungry to experience more of Jesus in your life today, you're welcome to take with us. Maybe there's some of you in this room, you need to take Jesus as Lord and Savior. We invite you to do that during this time. You don't have to say the perfect words. You don't need a pastor to help lead you. It's you just giving your life over, all of you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around him. The creator of the universe embodied in flesh. And he looked at them and he said, my body is about to be ripped apart for you. The creator of the cosmos will be ripped apart so that you can be put back together. And every time you eat this bread, my body, remember me. Let's take the body of Christ together this morning. Jesus took the cup, which represents his shed blood. He said, I will shed my blood for you once and for all to wash away and wipe away your sin. 
that one day you stand before God, God will not see your sin and your guilt and your shame. He will see my blood, which will set you free and give you life. Let's take the blood of Christ together. Right where you're at, would you take the next 30 seconds to a minute and out of gratitude in your heart, would you just thank God for what he's done? We end every service here with a heart of gratitude, not of entitlement, but thankfulness for the gospel. Jesus, what you have done for us, you are everything. God, thank you, Father, that you hold the world together, that you see everything in our life. Maybe if nothing else this morning, let me say this to you, you may be in this room and before we dismiss here in just a moment, you just needed a reminder that God is intimately involved in your life and everything around you that seems broken and in disrepair or in chaos, God is in control. He is absolutely in control and he sees it, he knows it, he knows you. And you walk out of this day not in fear and anxiety of what could be, but in trust knowing that the creator of the universe calls you to him, loves you, knows you by name, and has prepared eternity for you. Thank you, Father, that we rest in that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. City Church, I'm so glad that you worshiped with us today. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward, any of our elders in the room, our prayer team, if you would make yourself available. As we end service in just a minute, if you just need somebody to agree with you in prayer, you're carrying something today for you or for someone else, we believe in the power of prayer. Stop by and allow some one of our prayer team to pray with you. Next week, we're gonna continue our Colossians series. If you're a first time guest, I'd love to meet you in the welcome room just across the lobby, just 30 seconds of your time. I'd be really honored if you stopped. Let's end with our mission statement. Go live it out this week, wherever you are. Be the gospel. God bless you. Bears heavy on my mind